Ted Jones messed with the wrong melon farmers. Ted Jones, I also call him the eighth wonder of the real estate world. Ted Jones, who knows, you know, it could be... Ted Jones? The Ted Jones World Podcast. Hello and welcome to the 41st episode of the Ted Jones World Podcast. I am your host, Ted Jones, and unfortunately, producer Pat is not here with us today. He's actually volunteering at the hospital this week. What a guy. So we actually have one of the top commercial brokers in New York City here with us, Senior Managing Director at Marcus and Millichap. Sean Riney. Sean, how you doing, man? What's up, Ted? I'm doing pretty fantastic. All You're right, bro. So um, just, be, just, before we get, just before we get into it and um, start chopping it up, um, for those of you who don't know what a commercial broker is, uh, I, I guess we'll say it simply. Sean is someone who sells buildings to people as an investment. So if you have any money available or you're trying to sell a building that, I don't know, you somehow got grandfathered into and now you have a real estate asset in new york city and you need someone to sell it to sean is your man so what's up man i've seen a bunch of your videos on instagram and um we love your insight love your energy so what's up man how you been i've been well i've been well you know I, i'm you know been dealing with uh all the the normal frustrations that everybody has i'm i'm ready to get back to work full time ready for my team to get back to work and in the office full time uh I, you know i think this is a very exciting time it's very volatile but um it's also very exciting as frustrating as it is um you know so I, honestly i've been having the time of my life but i'm also very frustrated at you know, just the bureaucracy and just, you know, finding it hard to get to the finish line on things because rightly so they're closed down or, you know, the government's put a lot of different uh, ways to block commerce uh, in place. Uh, so we're struggling through those things, but a lot is changing in a lot of people's life. And as a facilitator, um, you know, I'm more in need than, than ever. So it's, it's definitely a different day every day. So I guess when uh, quarantine, for the most part, kind of started for businesses and people were realizing that, oh, shit, like this is definitely serious, like we need to do something about it. So like middle of March, I guess, March 15th, 16th, we're looking at that around now, that was like 85 days ago. So were there, was there like a huge uh, drop off in terms of, you know, purchasing or selling or what do you what do you think like really was affected um, you know due to this coronavirus? Yeah, everything was affected. I would say in general, I think March eleventh was the date that I have in my head, and basically it was just a straight up guillotine of like transactions stopped in place. Um, anything that hadn't you know a contract that had not been signed yet uh, basically was put on pause. Um, you know, a couple buyers moved forward with their contracts, but basically the first you know, 30 to 45 days of, you know, since this shelter was, was in place, it was kind of reconciling the deals that were already done. You know, I've, I've closed about 600 sales in my career and maybe can count on one hand how many fell out of contract. Usually in New York City, you put up a hard refundable deposit and eventually those properties close. Uh, this was an event where many times the value of the perceived property dropped below the deposit amount. Uh, which could obviously fluctuate, but we basically had to go resell the deals that we already had sold, which, you know, for a broker in time is my only commodity can be very annoying and very frustrating, but those situations need to be worked out. So, you know, the, you know, I think we had 18 properties in contract when, 
you know, March 11th hit. And it seems like we're only going to drop a couple of them, but you know, certain times adjustments needed to be made, extensions needed to be given. Uh, and so it was basically like a lot of looking backwards before you could look forwards. Um, and as far as new acquisitions, yeah, at any moment of a great, you know, change, you know, and, and uncertainty comes into the market, everyone freezes, uh, you know, either the banks freeze, the buyer freezes, the seller freezes, somebody in the decision making process freezes. And so it's been a, you know, kind of a slow kind of um, warming up to, you know, doing deals again. Um, you know, and so the, the beginning was was frustrating. That was probably the part where you know, I kind of stepped aside just a little bit, um, kind of buttoned down my own personal hatches. But over the last, I'd say, you know, 30 to 45 days, uh, we're, we're moving and shaking. I mean, we've, we've put, I just put five uh, mixed-use buildings near Prospect Heights, all free market mixed-use properties, the things that aren't sellable or whatever you want to say, in contract. Uh, we put 36 units in Carroll Gardens under contract. How we're getting them done is a different, you know, way. We're doing drive-by tours and you know, just we're, we're figuring it out, but we're still mixing and matching. And, you know, the experienced investors can still make a decision to buy a property with, without a full inspection. It can so be is there, um, is there like a halt on commercial brokers, you know, being able to show spaces in New York City right now? Or are you guys just kind of finding your own wave like commercial brokers really always do? I mean, is this something that you even studied in college? You know, how to be a commercial broker and how to deal with just for the most part, dealing with people a lot, you know what I, I mean? Def yeah. I mean, to answer you the first question, um, the, the seasoned investment pros that are going to be buying in today's market can get 95% of the way there on a transaction without seeing every nook and cranny of the real estate. Um, you know, you can go and basically drive by the property, you can get a feel, you can look at the department of buildings, HPD, you can, study the general layouts of the property. There's ways to get there pretty closely. Um, even myself, the first four buildings I ever bought, I never saw the inside of them before I wired the money. I mean, if you get good enough at this, you can kind of get pretty close to there. And um, so, you know, we're, we're, we've reduced our buying pool to the people that can operate under those conditions. Um, but that's how the deals in the very you know, early part of this have been done, short of video tours being done on vacant apartments, which has also been very, very helpful. Um, and to answer your question about college, college definitely taught me a lot. And I, I was a political science major, but I got my start. Um, you know, I, I rented, I went to Boston University in my first off-campus apartment sophomore year. You know, we went around, toured, you know, seven different shithole four-bedroom apartments. And uh, at the end of the day, they're like, okay, you got to pick one of these, uh, one of these, uh, you know, shitholes. And I was like, okay, I guess we got to take this one. It's a big pressure cooker September 1st. Right. And what like, a deal okay. for the guy giving you the apartment. Yeah, and twenty eight hundred dollar commission. So I looked, I looked at my my roommates. I was like, "This is the easiest money I've ever seen somebody make in my life." Like pressure cooker situation. Like you got a week to decide. It's all terrible options. So anyway, <laughs> I took, instead of complaining about it, I started to work at that company the the next week uh, as a rental broker. Simultaneous to that, I started a fraternity at college and. Basically, that just became a feeder client base. Every one of the fraternity members that I, uh, the fraternity I started, I made rent an apartment for me. And, uh, you know, it was just kind of learning the Boston real estate market cold. I was a very hard closer. I don't think anybody ever got in my car a second time. I, you know, I was the guy that, like, are all the people that are the decision makers here? Number one, have you talked to your parents? Number two, I'm going to show you the best three apartments in all the city, not 300, because I know the top three, because I've been to every apartment. And you're going to choose one of them. You got it? 
And so if they didn't do that, they, yeah, I was pretty hard closer on the right, course because right, right. I, I did know all the products. So if they weren't going to pick the top three that I was going to show them, they were just wasting my time. Um, you know, so that, that got me into the flow of the real estate, the quick, you know, quick transactions, quick money. What I do now can take a year to kind of collect a check, but that was like, you can, you can make uh, you know, 10 grand in a weekend if you're really hustling and know your stuff. Um, it also taught me that, uh, you know, I need to be uh, cognizant of money. I, I think, uh, my junior year in college, I had, I'd made somewhere around 130,000 and I'd spent every last dollar of it on the nightclubs. And Gee, the- wait, and that was, then that was working part-time. Yeah, part time, wow. just you know, just kind of hustling. But I had uh, I had spent every dollar of it on the nightclubs, and you know, the next March, April rolled around. All of a sudden, I get this IRS tax bill for forty, fifty thousand dollars, and I literally had no idea. I I had no idea I didn't had to pay the taxes. I so I had to get a loan to pay the taxes that of the of the money that I'd made. Uh, you know, kind of my junior year of college. So you know, whatever. I, I picked it up the next year, but. It was I mean, fun, you were figuring it, it out step by, step by step is basically like, you know, what sounds like what was going on. And then by the time you graduated, did you move to New York City right away and just were doing the same stuff that you were doing in Boston? Yeah, I was just like, look, you can only make so much, you know, running around like a chicken with your head cut off doing rentals. There is a ceiling to that. So um, I knew that I knew I needed to step into a bigger playing field. I stumbled upon, you know, into Brooklyn, met with JD Parker. I, I got lost in the way from Boston to, to Brooklyn, but I met a, a guy and kind of leaned in and just like, you know, you're my guy, let's do this. Um, and kind of started September 08, right before Lehman Brothers fell and the whole kind of world stopped again. So this is like an environment I'm very used to. Yeah. Um, it's kind of where I kind of, you know, cut my stripes, um, you know, but Boston was, Boston University is a great place, you know, if, if setting aside the whole real estate part, you know, it's just, you know, the whole, you're, you are the byproduct of the five people you spend the most time around, what BU taught me was you know, to get a chip on my shoulder in a good way, you know, I, I came from a very humble background, and, you know, there's a lot of privileged people that go to BU, and I was pissed off that they could just, you know, go spend on the girls, and spend on this and that, and dad's money, and yeah. That just got me angry, and it's still kind of—I still wear it on my sleeve. Like I gotta—I want to be the most successful person in my graduating class. Period. End of story. Nice. Period. Nice. Well, whether I am or not, who knows? But well, I mean, that's just—that's a step in the right direction, man. You gotta—you gotta start to want it. You know what I'm saying? Um, Sean Ryaney giving us a huge background here on um, New York City real estate. So you're saying you own a few buildings, which I—I I knew that. Uh, very cool. So let's say like the person listening right now, hello, boys and girls, um, they want to buy an apartment building. They have some money uh, available. How do they go about even starting to do that? I mean, you know, saving $5,000 in an account won't buy you an apartment building in Brooklyn, right? Yeah, no, the the craziest thing about what, you know, what I do in commercial real estate is it's, it's a lot different than a stock. And it's, it's kind of like, it's a counterintuitive thinking, but what's, what's valuable is hard to acquire, you know, and, and getting to the finish line on a, on a piece of real estate is a hard thing to acquire, especially in New York city. feels like there's um, like a lot have, of moving, moving pieces. Like you had said, I mean, you got to put your money down right away and start moving. Yeah. You got to be able to get a loan. You got to be able to compete. You got to be able to, you know, get a seller before somebody else does. You got to be able to deal with a broker like me that may not take, you know, the chances on a rookie buyer. I mean, that's generally not something I'm looking to do. Um, I think that, you know, the the first step is to really start acting like you're a buyer before you're ready to buy and really study, you know, be studying the market. 
um, because you need to track the market to know it. You're never going to figure it out on street easy or clicking around or reading the New York times. You have to be really tracking deals and watching what other people pay for them and trying to reverse engineer them to really learn the market. Um, so would that, would that be, would that be uh, a situation like you were talking about when you were at college, you were a broker, you saw the ins and outs, then you got hit with that huge tax bill. You're like, okay, now I realize, yeah, taxes are going to be involved, this and that. So there's definitely so many moving pieces in real estate, but um, it didn't mean to cut you off there. So what's really uh, something that a, a buyer should fully know? before they just put their money down and they're like, Oh, well, this looks like somewhere I can, I can, uh, I don't know, put my money for the next 20 years. I mean, you need to know the comps. I mean, you want to know where the high wall, if you're buying something that's perception of value add, you want to know where the high watermark is, right? If you're going to buy, just use a residential term. If you want to know, you know, if you're buying a, the worst building on the best block, you want to know what the best block, you know, best property sold for in a price per square foot. So you know where you can build up into if you're going to buy something for $300 a square foot, and something else sold for 700, if you can put in 200 and be in, into it for 500, you're going to make a $200 per square foot difference. So oh. the key with buying a value add deal is to know where the high watermark is historically for the finished version of whatever that is. Um, you know, that's, you know, one component. The second component is you have to understand wh where the where, where the banks are. I mean, Traditionally, if you're looking to recycle money and, and kind of, you know, and, and make money quickly over time, you, you're, you have two exits. You have either a sale, an exchange, or you can sell to the bank, which is called a refinance. And so it's very critical to know how does a bank look at a property? If I raise the NOI, you know, $100,000, how is a bank going to look at that new NOI and what are they going to give me on a new loan as a refinance? Because that's really the way to, to grow a lot of wealth. It's not to, you know, to buy properties, sell them, pay the capital gains. It's either to buy, sell, and exchange uh, through a tax-deferred you know, nature into a better property, bigger property, or improve your property, refinance tax-free, use that refinance money to buy additional assets. The key is the first deal needs to be the best deal. Like You can't mess up the first deal. Um, and so you need to buy right on the first time because you are going to make mistakes renovating, you know, financing, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. So you got to have the right basis. Um, and really, yeah, it starts with tracking. If you're planning to buy a property in 2021, you should be tracking every little last thing. Like you got, you know, $10 million in your pocket studying the market as, you know, as if you're buying now in order to prepare yourself to buy in 2021, you won't know what a good deal is if you're just looking into a one month vacuum of time. Takes so, a lot of work. If, so someone is, you know, thinking about purchasing something like they have $10 million and burning a hole in their pocket. God bless them. That's a, a great problem to have. Where do you think would be the best uh, place to put that $10 million? I mean, I would assume you'd like to split it up a little bit, but where do you think uh, that $10 million goes the farthest if I plan on never selling it and giving it to my kids? Um, I think if you're if you're new to the the game, I would yeah. not I would not take any chances with rent stabilization code. You got to stay pretty clear away from that. So, I, so I if would, you could just if you can just quickly um, give the average viewer and listener um, just to kind of break down on rent stabilization code as you as you just said. Yeah, so rent stabilization was a, a law that was put into place for anything six units or above that was built prior to 1974. So most of the city's uh, housing stock is rent stabilized in some form. 
it comes with a Byzantinian labyrinth of laws that are changing on a year-to-year -year basis. And if you don't follow them, which is nearly impossible to follow perfectly, you can get penalized quite, you know, quite uh, harshly. Now, the, the, the benefit of them historically before they passed the most recent legislation was it theoretically created uh, artificially, um, your downside was protected. Like theoretically, your rents would never go down because they were artificially held back from their true market value by this rent stabilization. So you'd have two buildings that are identical, building A and building B, but building A is fully stabilized and is worth 25% of what building B fully free market and fully renovated is. So it created a, it, it's always a nuanced game, but you have two identical looking buildings that can be worth two wildly different things. So there was a way over time, very patiently to build into a higher and higher, you know, net worth. It took a long time, but you know, two to 3% increases over time, you know, would work, but you know, to understand rent stabilization from, you know, and buying a property, you can get up and down on it. There's, you know, if you Google DHCR fact sheets and read those, you know, cover to cover five times, you'll have a good understanding. My partner wrote a book, uh, Multifamily Secrets, which basically outlines everything you need to know on a topical level about buying in New York City. Um, but it's one of these things where it's, it's complicated. You can't go into it not knowing the basics and the terminology versus a free market property, which is five residential units or under, um, typically doesn't have any of this rent stabilization component. Your tenant leaves, you're able to charge whatever rent you want to the next tenant, just like you are in most parts of the country. Um, now those properties are easier to underwrite, they're easier to, to kind of figure out. The tenants don't basically have rights in life estates if they want for life. Um, you know, so, but, but there's not as much, you know, long-term value creation in them because they're usually at a higher price per square foot starting out. Right. Um, so, I mean, but as a, a rookie buyer, that seems like the move. I mean, it seems like you yeah. just want to go to a place that'd be easier to underwrite and you just ride that cash flow until forever, right? Yeah, I would buy something that's five apartments or less where you don't have any rent stabilization, risk management, code issues, and just start managing that type of property, you know, managing property, you're learning a lot. I mean, I think before you buy a building period, you should be in the industry, whether that's being a broker, whether that's working for a property management company, whether that's working for the city, which is a great way into the business. You'll work for basically free, but your responsibilities that you'll be given will be 10 times your pay grade because no one wants that job. Definitely. Um, if you really want to get in and, and be at the at the helm of things or work as an acquisitions you know person for a buyer group um, but you need to probably be in the business for two to three years you know minimally before just buying a property you know um, you know on your own um, you know maybe another way to do that is just to be an LP on something and be able to closely follow along but there's a lot to this um, to this business especially in New York um, right. so it, you know, I, I would never recommend somebody just buy a property without being in the business first in some capacity. So um, it being 2020, tenants are very um, outspoken, I guess, now more so than ever, like you were talking about the rent stabilization laws. Uh, we know that those have been changing. It seems like every six months, I can't really nail it down. Uh, just going from a tenant perspective, would you say that landlords are demonized or I guess vilified for better lack of a word? 
Of course. So first of all, I think we got to change the term. word. First of all, Ted, I think we got to change the terminology we use. You know, the, the whole landlord definition is so antiquated. We aren't lording over anything. Like there is a million protections uh, that do not uh, have any reference to the uh, feudal system. So the, the relationship between property owner and tenant has definitely been um, demonized by, you know, politicians that just want to use it as a wedge issue to kind of create a following, but it's not really baked in reality. Tenants, you know, want the same thing that the owners want. They want, you know, the property to be functioning correctly. They want, you know, to be able to pay their own bills. They want to be able to live in a place that allows them to like succeed in their own careers and not have to worry about all these things. Um, every property owner and developer I know embraces a diversity of income streams. They love low income. They love middle income. They love high income. They will build and they will renovate and they will rehab wherever the incentives are to actually make a profit. Now, what's happened recently is just, um, you know, what, what, what needed to happen was just put some bumper rails on things. Um, you know, for instance, you know, you can put much every every owner that I know would love to throw anybody that's harassing tenants in jail. Like it's like taking one example and running a ten thousand miles with it. So, can um, you just give give a quick breakdown of the classic situation where you're saying that one bad egg really caused this whole industry to change? Yeah, there were there were some you know kind of reports about you know people turning off you know, like a couple of landlords, I mean, just in any industry, you're going to get a couple of bad examples, right? Like, but it's, it's less than 1% of the property owner population that had turned off kitchens and stuff like that to make living conditions intolerable to force a tenant to vacate or buy out. That is an extremely sensationalized version that is so few and far between, uh, but it was taken you know, to a crazy extremity because it's it's easy to build up that kind of support. It's the same thing that Trump does with the immigrants. Like they're all bad, yada, rapists, yada, yada. It's just a political, it's it's something that the politicians have seen as a clear way to like rally up and galvanize people, even though it's not in their interests, what they're actually passing. I, I, I honestly feel like the, uh, some of the, and I'm as progressively liberal as you can imagine, but there's something about like a Munchausen's by proxy going on with this kind of party <laughs> where it's like, we want to make you sick just so we can take care of you. And it's, and I'll give you a perfect example of that. The June Housing Tenant Protection Act, it basically said that when you get an apartment that used to be rent stabilized at $500, it's been lived in for 35 years, these buildings are crumbling as it is. If that apartment finally gets vacant, now instead of being able to hire a contractor, improve the unit, improve the rent, you know, rent it to somebody else that can afford it, this person voluntarily left, that you can only raise the rent $89. Now, there are properties, I, I'm a limited partner in some of them, that have 30 to 40 units vacant right now because I cannot, as a human being, even rent these units. They're disgusting. They've been lived in. They're not habitable. And there's no economic incentive to improve them. So if you fast track what's going to happen two or three years, if the legislation is not changes, the new people moving to New York City, the nice apartments are going to go for extremely high rents. And everything else, people are going to look around and be like, why is this place such a shithole? Why is everything so gross? And that doesn't help anybody. And so if you're a tenant out there and you, you believe this whole like rent strike and property owners are evil, like understand that what they actually did in that law was steal the equity that you had inherent in your rent stabilized lease. 
there used to be an economic incentive for both property owner and tenant where nobody could harass you out that you're, you're allowed to stay there till the end of your life and even pass on the rights. But you used to be able to tap the owner on the, on the shoulder and say, Hey, you know, I'm 65 years old right now. I'm tired of walking up a six floor walk up the units old. Like I want to just, you know, I want to move to North Carolina and be with my kids. Or I want to move to Florida. Like, I want to buy a house in middle village, you know, with the money. And they used to be able to tap the owner and the owner would have an economic incentive to give $50,000, $60,000 so that that person could leave. And it worked for both parties. Right. There because are, like, it, I mean, it just seemed like a situation that, you know, this guy wants to move out. He's paying $500. The market rate for that apartment is $2,000. So the owner puts in $40,000, gets a new tenant, both sides win. Go ahead. Both sides win. And what this, this law did, which most tenants don't realize, is it put the economic value of their rent-stabilized lease at zero. Explain it is worth that. Nothing. Why? Why? Because there's no, there's no incentive for the owner to ever give a buyout anymore. All, they want you to stay in that unit. Like they can't raise the rent. They can't improve the units. So if you used to have a $1,000 unit that could have been 3000 when you chose to leave voluntarily, the owner would actually be incentivized to say, sure, yeah, let me just do the math. As long as we're both winning here, here's a $50,000 check. Here's a $40,000 check, which would be then used to buy a home in Middle Village, go to Florida, increase the mobility, incre increase the upper mobility, prosperity for all. And so what happened with this thing, which isn't reported, is really what that did was it wiped out billions of dollars of tenant equity like now they are truly imprisoned into a rent stabilized unit that has no economic value and i think that's it. that's very sad because i know most of these tenants were relying on that when that day came for that money and it's not there anymore now you have tenants chasing owners saying hey i'd like to get out of here and, and the owner's like well, what do you want me to do? can't just like toss good money after bad like call your local politicians. They removed every incentive. They basically went into your bank account and took what you had as equity, meaning your rent stabilized lease. They made that worthless. So that, that nest egg that you had in your rent stabilized lease is now worth nothing. And if tenants really realize, this is what I mean about the, you know, Munchausen's by proxy. It's like, okay, I'm all for anti-harassment. I'm all for putting even a minimum buyout allowance to make sure people are getting a fair shake. But why imprison people into these systems where it's like now they're, they're really stuck. And guess what? These buildings are old. They're falling apart. Like sometimes they need to be turned over. Not to mention, Ted, that the only way that you can pay for rent stabilization is with the free market rents. So if you don't create the system where you can take an apartment and raise the rent and then the property value goes up and then the contractors get paid, all this tax revenue, you cannot subsidize a rent stabilized unit. I have buildings that the, the taxes per unit alone are more than the rent stabilized rent. Forget about the insurance, the fuel. So where does the money come from, right? It's, the system did work. There needed to be little you know, um, bumper, bumper lanes, right? To, to block out the 1% the fringe that were, mis, that were abusing things. But you, know, you did it at the cost of basically you know, imprisoning people into a unit. They don't, and tenants don't realize that yet. If they did, they wouldn't have voted. They wouldn't be putting up the, you know, the, the things because you know what, they were relying that one day they were going to be done and they wanted to move and they wanted to buy a house. You can buy a house in Middle Village, you know, with a $40,000, $50,000 down payment. You know, you tell me if that's a bad thing because you know what, every single tenant that got 
that got bought out for the most part, if you offer them that money back to go back into that unit, they aren't coming back. You know, it's so, like I said, there's a lot of backwards policies going on right now in New York that really need to get reconciled for the economy to kind of pick up, which we meet, you know, need more than now than ever, now that we're in a big budget deficit. So I think what Sean is ultimately just trying to, um, you know, portray here, especially as a landlord, just understanding what kind of bills uh, come in. You obviously know that, you know, there's, there's a cap on what you actually want to spend on your building. And it doesn't make any sense if somebody moves out of a rent stabilized unit, like you said, and the, the unit, I mean, the rent that they were paying was $500. You're not going to re-rent that apartment at $520. And one, that doesn't make any sense just financially. And also that person, if they're renting a unit in a building that's nice with free market units around it for 500 and whatever the increase is, $520, they're never going to leave. So, so even, even with a buyout or anything like that, it just doesn't make any sense. It sounds like. And there's no means tested to it. So anyway, I think, you know, as a result of this pandemic, my silver lining hope, and cause look, the, the, the Titanic was going to sink in this city because of the, those laws. It, it just takes a little while to destroy a city this big. Uh, and it's going to hit the, the neighborhoods that need it the most quickest you will see boarded up doors and boarded up and boarded up apartment doors. That was happening regardless. So my only silver lining hope is, you know, what does COVID do? It puts a magnifying glasses on any weakness that you have in your life, be it your relationships, your economies, your businesses. It magnifies everything. So my only silver lining hope is that COVID has magnified the need that we need to, you know, create revenue by encouraging business, by encouraging job creation and it, it, it shows that the holes that were going to sink the Titanic, it, it shows them quicker and clearer because people were holding on. But the, the laws that were passed, you know, bankrupted the system before the pandemic even happened. It was just going to be a slow bankrupting. And so do, you out- think that th- do you think that theoretically with landlords not putting any money into buildings anymore, at least or at least rent stabilized buildings? are these buildings going to collapse? Like what happens if the structure is faulty or the roof doesn't work or the hallways are slipping out? I don't, I don't even know what could like the amount of things that could go wrong with the building, a boiler, whatever it is. Yeah. Over time, there will be capitulation and fatigue. What's been happening right now is everybody's holding on. They're just saying like, look, like, I mean, just hope that like common sense prevails. But if anybody is questioning, put yourself in this perspective. Do you go to work? every single day, busting your chops, not only to not make a profit at all, but intentionally knowing you will lose more money every single day you work. Okay, that is the situation that property owners that own rent regulated housing are faced. Now it's only been a year, but there is zero way to raise the rent, zero. And the expenses are going up and up. So you ask yourself before you, 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 demonize the property owner. Like, are you going to work for free? Are you going to work knowing that you're losing money or do you just stop showing up? Because eventually people are going to stop showing up and that's where that capitulation, you know, kind of occurs where the debt comes due. And it's like, you know, you, me and 10 of your listeners own a building. Okay. Guess what? The boiler goes out or we need to renovate this apartment, but we can't raise the rent. And the rent is lower than the operating cost of the unit to begin with. You, it makes more sense to keep it vacant because you don't have the water running and the heat running than it does to put somebody else in there at this below market rent that was subsidized the entire time by the free market nature. So 
it's it's not an economically viable system for the city. It's something that was put out there by people that have never understood economics and don't understand that the, the Department of Finance collects 44% of its revenue to pay for homeless social services, basically everything that you see from property and real estate taxes. Like we are not the enemy. We are the limited partners and all the things that we need. And we're trying to scream as loud as we can, but people aren't sticking their necks out because if they stick their necks out on public, they get hit with the rent strike the next day. They get chopped so it's off. A very, it's a very, very scary place for a property owner to be. And they're all just kind of hiding in a corner, rightly so, because they don't want to get called and rent striked and get 311 on their building every day. But they're just, they're gripping on, man. They're doing the essential work, just like the nurses cleaning the hallways. They're holding on in hopes that Cuomo steps in and realizes the disaster that he allowed to kind of happen. And if anything, again, the silver lining hope is that we do this because you will see neighborhoods that were in the middle of revitalization slip backwards very, very quickly. The Tony areas, the established neighborhoods, those will hold up fine because you know what, there's enough money in there to kind of keep everything kind of going. But, you know, the mixed, you know, income neighborhoods, you know, you could see a very slippery slope going down there. I mean, you will see a bankruptcy of neighborhoods without, without a change in some of these policies. So um, with all this talk about rent stabilization, you know, we initially spoke about how the perfect building for you to buy is something under five units, right? So it's just five free market apartments is the cleanest, safest thing you can do as your single first purchase asset. Would you say? Yeah, I would say that. I think if you're another easy way in is rents, in my opinion, we'll see what happens. But, you know, I biked through the city 24 miles yesterday. Just I saw like, that. I saw that. I saw that on your Instagram, yeah, man. Impressive. I could not be- believe how empty it is. So, you know, and I know a lot of friends that have, you know, left the city and they bounced from their leases, living in upstate, wherever they came from. So you have this mass exodus of people going on this summer, which will have to reduce rents, right? And so, in the theory that a gut renovated free market apartment building is kind of a blue chip stock, I rather buy a blue chip stock after a couple quarters of bad earnings, which is essentially what's going to happen with rents, I think, and, and then capture that upside when the rents go back up. So if you're in the market, be tracking where rents are right now. If you can look at a building to buy in January, February, March, and the rents have been reduced by 10 to 15% from you know 2020 eras, you apply a five to six percent return on that. When those rents inevitably go back up, because I do believe that this city will fill up. I am not believing any of this nonsense that you see in the uh, in the news. I think New York City is one big hotel, and as soon as somebody checks out, another will check in, uh, and we will. It might not be the same cast of characters, but the new people will will fill in. But anyway, if you can buy a building on a lower rent roll uh, because of it's a depressed rental market, even if it's a clean building you didn't have to do anything to when those rents go up you look like a genius some of the best buildings i ever sold were in bedford stuyvesant 2011 2012 at six and seven percent cap rates when everyone said oh this is maxed out and then guess what two bedroom rents went from 1300 to 2000 and that six to seven percent return became 11 percent, and they didn't have to lift a finger um so that's what i think you you watch for in the free market category is where are the rents being hit the hardest and try to time your purchase on a low rent roll because when the rent roll goes back up, you look like a genius. So um, just to wrap it up here, Sean, uh, w- one last question. So 
How do you really get your fingers on the pulse in terms of, all right, this seems like a good buy, you know, doing all your research you know, as much as you can. Uh, where do you finally plank down that, that deposit? What, what kind of place makes sense? Um, you know, it's a very nuanced type of, you know, yeah, yeah. You city, you know, so many like, different ways. It just depends on which superstar broker I'm asking. Right. Yeah, no, there's, I mean, there's nuanced, you know, th there's a nuanced way of looking at a lot of different real estate, but you know, for me personally, I, you know, if you, if you have the, the chutzpah, like, uh, you know, I, I like the, the fully rent stabilized as the price per units and price per square foots get lower. I, you know, it's kind of like the Ackman thing. Like I think that the, as negative as I am about what the current situation is and the current laws and, and they are as negative as negative can be. There is no hope without a law change for these buildings. I do think that because it will get so bad so much faster now that the city and the state will have to realize that they have to change these things to stimulate the economy. And so if you're buying cheap enough real estate and you're buying at a 5% cap rate in place, fully stabilized. You know what? We don't need to ever kick anybody. Stay forever. But when eventually there, there becomes a change where when somebody leaves, I can actually raise the rent, there's going to be a good opportunity there. Um, and, and again, I just think you got to be tracking, you got to be tracking deals. You have to be writing offers. You have to be studying, you know, previous sales. I mean, when I started in 2008, I knew every comp from 2002 even when I was in college, I had a historical perspective of the market before I was even there because I needed to sound intelligent. And I'm still thinking about these things. I went back to see who was buying in 2009 to 2011. Like I, I you know, you're constantly yeah. a master of business plans. And in this business, you know, the, the buyers and the sellers are your professors. You don't need to go get an MBA and spend $50,000. You just need to go talk to people that are doing it and watch what they do and watch how they've executed and reverse engineer things. And that's how you kind of learn, learn the game, which is hard to do from the outside. Right. Cool. Sean, thank you so much. Sean Riney from Marcus and Melichap. Sean, why don't you give us your IG, give us, give us uh, your email. How do we get in contact with you, bro? Sure. Uh, uh, Sean Riney one is the uh, Instagram handle, uh, New York multifamily.com uh, for the website, everything else you'll find on there. So thanks so much, Sean Riney, episode 41 here of the Ted Jones World Podcast. A lot of information. If you didn't understand anything, go listen to it again. Sean, thank you so much, man. Thanks, Ted. Talk to you soon.